This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 4 The Zola Controversy The difference between two great nations can be illustrated by the coincidence that at this moment both France and England are engaged in discussing the memorial of a literary man. France is considering the celebration of the late Zola. England is considering that of the recently deceased Shakespeare. There is some national significance. It may be, in the time that has elapsed, some will find impatience and indelicacy in this early attack on Zola or deification of him. But the nation which has sat still for three hundred years after Shakespeare's funeral may be considered perhaps to have carried delicacy too far. But much deeper things are involved than the mere matter of time. The point of the contrast is that the French are discussing whether there shall be any monument, while the English are discussing only what the monument shall be. In other words, the French are discussing a living question, while we are discussing a dead one or rather, not a dead one, but a settled one, which is quite a different thing. When a thing of the intellect is settled, it is not dead, rather it is immortal. The multiplication table is immortal, and so is the fame of Shakespeare. But the fame of Zola is not dead, or not immortal. It is at its crisis. It is in the balance, and may be found wanting. The French, therefore, are quite right in considering it a living question. It is still living as a question, because it is not yet solved. But Shakespeare is not a living question. He is a living answer. For my part, therefore, I think the French Zola controversy much more practical and exciting than the English Shakespeare one. The admission of Zola to the Pantheon may be regarded as defining Zola's position. But nobody could say that a statue of Shakespeare, even fifty feet high, on the top of St. Paul's Cathedral, could define Shakespeare's position. It only defines our position toward Shakespeare. It is he who is fixed. It is we who are unstable. The nearest approach to an English parallel to the Zola case would be furnished if it were proposed to put some savagely controversial and largely repulsive author among the ashes of the great English poets. Suppose, for instance, it were proposed to bury Mr. Rudyard Kipling in Westminster Abbey. I should be against burying him in Westminster Abbey, first because he is still alive, and here I think even he himself might admit the justice of my protest, and second because I should like to reserve that rapidly narrowing space for the great permanent examples not for the interesting foreign interruptions of English literature. I would not have either Mr. Kipling or Mr. George Moore in Westminster Abbey, though Mr. Kipling has certainly caught, even more cleverly than Mr. Moore, the lucid and cool cruelty of the French short story. I'm very sure that Geoffrey Chaucer and Joseph Addison get on very well together in the poet's corner, despite the centuries that sunder them but I feel that Mr. George Moore would be much happier in Pierre Lachaise 
with a riotous statue by Rodin on the top of him, and Mr. Kipling much happier under some huge Asiatic monument carved with all the cruelties of the gods. As to the affair of the English monument to Shakespeare, every people has its own mode of commemoration, and I think there is a great deal to be said for ours. There is the French monumental style, which consists in erecting very pompous statues, very well done. There is the German monumental style, which consists in erecting very pompous statues, badly done. And there is the English monumental method, the great English way with statues, which consists in not erecting them at all. A statue may be dignified, but the absence of a statue is always dignified. For my part, I feel there is something national, something wholesomely symbolic in the fact that there is no statue of Shakespeare. There is, of course, one in Leicester Square, but the very place where it stands shows that it was put up by a foreigner for foreigners. There is surely something modest and manly about not attempting to express our greatest poets in the plastic arts in which we do not excel. We honor Shakespeare as the Jews honor God by not daring to make of him a graven image. Our sculpture, our statues, are good enough for bankers and philanthropists who are our curse, not good enough for him who is our benediction. Why should we celebrate the very art in which we triumph by the very art in which we fail? England is most easily understood as the country of amateurs. It is especially the country of amateur soldiers, that is, of volunteers, of amateur statesmen, that is, of aristocrats, and it is not unreasonable or out of keeping that it should be rather specially the country of a careless and lounging view of literature. Shakespeare has no academic monument for the same reason that he had no academic education. He had small Latin and less Greek, and in the same spirit he has never been commemorated in Latin epithets or Greek marble. If there is nothing clear and fixed about the emblems of his fame, it is because there was nothing clear and fixed about the origins of it. Those great schools and universities which watch a man in his youth may record him in his death, but Shakespeare had no such unifying traditions. We can only say of him what we can say of Dickens. We can only say that he came from nowhere and that he went everywhere. For him a monument in any place is out of place. A cold statue in a certain square is unsuitable to him as it would be unsuitable to Dickens. If we put up a statue of Dickens in Portland Place tomorrow, we should feel the stiffness as unnatural. We should fear that the statue might stroll about the street at night. But in France, the question of whether Zola shall go to the Pantheon when he is dead is quite as practicable as the question whether he should go to prison when he was alive. It is the problem of whether the nation shall take one turn of thought or another. In raising a monument to Zola, they do not raise merely a trophy, but a finger post. The question is one which will have to be settled in most European countries, but like all such questions, it has come first to a head in France, because France is the battlefield of Christendom. That question is, of course, roughly this, whether in that ill-defined area of verbal license on certain dangerous topics it is an extenuation of indelicacy 
or an aggravation of it that the indelicacy was deliberate and solemn is indecency more indecent if it is grave or more indecent if it is gay for my part i belong to an old school in this matter when a book or play strikes me as a crime i'm not disarmed by being told that it is a serious crime if a man has written something vile i am not comforted by the explanation that he quite meant to do it i know all the evils of flippancy i do not like the man who laughs at the sight of virtue but i prefer him to the man who weeps at the sight of virtue and complains bitterly of there being any such thing i am not reassured when ethics are as wild as cannibalism by the fact that they are also as grave and sincere as suicide and i think there is an obvious fallacy in the bitter contrast drawn by some moderns between the aversion to ibsen's ghosts and the popularity of some such joke as dear old charlie surely there is nothing mysterious or unphilosophic in the popular's preference the joke of dear old charlie is passed because it is a joke ghosts are exercised because they are ghosts this is of course the whole question of zola i am grown up and i do not worry myself much about zola's immorality the thing i cannot stand is his morality if ever a man on this earth lived to embody the tremendous text but if the light in your body be darkness how great is the darkness it was certainly he great men like aristo rabelais and shakespeare fall in foul places flounder in violent but venial sin sprawl for pages exposing their gigantic weaknesses are dirty are indefensible and then they struggle up again and can still speak with a convincing kindness and an unbroken honor of the best things in the world rabelais of the instruction of ardent and austere youth aristo of holy chivalry shakespeare of the splendid stillness of mercy but in zola even the ideals are undesirable zola's mercy is colder than justice nay zola's mercy is more bitter in the mouth than injustice when zola shows us an ideal training he does not take us like rabelais into the happy fields of humanist learning he takes us into the schools of inhumanist learning where there are neither books nor flowers nor wine nor wisdom but only deformities in glass bottles and where the rule is taught from the exceptions zola's truth answers the exact description of the skeleton in the cupboard that is it is something of which a domestic custom forbids the discovery but which is quite dead even when it is discovered macaulay said that the puritans hated bear baiting not because it gave pain to the bear but because it gave pleasure to the spectators of such substance also was this puritan who had lost his god a puritan of this type is worse than the puritan who hates pleasure because there is evil in it this man actually hates evil because there is pleasure in it zola was worse than a pornographer he was a pessimist he did worse than encourage sin he encouraged discouragement he made lust loathsome because to him lust meant life oxford from without some time ago i ventured to defend that race of hunted and persecuted outlaws the bishops 
but until this week I had no idea of how much persecuted they were. For instance, the Bishop of Birmingham made some extremely sensible remarks in the House of Lord, to the effect that Oxford and Cambridge were, as everybody knows they are, far too much merely plutocratic playgrounds. One would have thought that an Anglican bishop might be allowed to know something about the English university system, and even to have, if anything, some bias in its favor. But as I pointed out, the rollicking radicalism of bishops has to be restrained. The man who writes the notes in this weekly paper called The Outlook feels that it is his business to restrain it. The passage has such a simple sublimity that I must quote it. Dr. Gore talked unworthily of his reputation when he spoke of the older universities as playgrounds for the rich and idle. In the first place, the rich men there are not idle. Some of the rich men are, and so some of the poor men. On the whole, the sons of noble and wealthy families keep up the best traditions of academic life. So far, this seems all very nice. It is a part of the universal principle on which Englishmen have acted in recent years. As you will not try to make the best people the most powerful people, persuade yourselves that the most powerful people are the best people. Mad Frenchmen and Irishmen try to realize the ideal. To you belongs the nobler and much easier task of idealizing the real. First give your universities entirely into the power of the rich, then let the rich start traditions, and then congratulate yourself on the fact that the sons of the rich keep up these traditions. All that is quite simple and jolly. But then this critic, who crushes Dr. Gore from the high throne of the outlook, goes on in a way that is really perplexing. It is distinctly advantageous, he says, that rich and poor, example, young men with smooth path in life before them, and those who have to hew out a road for themselves, should be brought into association. Each class learns a great deal from the other. On the one side, social conceit and exclusiveness gives way to the free spirit of competition among all classes. On the other side, angularities and prejudices are rubbed away. Even this I might have swallowed. But the paragraph concludes with this extraordinary sentence. We get the net result in such careers as those of Lord Milner, Lord Curzon, and Mr. Asquith. Those three names lay my intellect prostrate. The rest of the argument I understand quite well. The social exclusiveness of aristocrats at Oxford and Cambridge gives way before the free spirit of competition among all classes. That is to say, there is at Oxford so hot and keen a struggle, consisting of coal-heavers, London clerks, gypsies, navvies, drapers, assistants, grocers' assistants, in short, all the classes that make up the bulk of England, there is such a fierce competition at Oxford among all these people that in its presence aristocratic exclusiveness gives way. That is all quite clear. I'm not quite sure about the facts, but I quite understand the argument. But then, having been called upon to contemplate this bracing picture of a boisterous turmoil of all the classes of England, I am suddenly asked to accept as example of it Lord Milner, Lord Curzon, and the present Chancellor of the Exchequer. What part do these gentlemen play in the mental process? 
Is Lord Curzon one of the rugged and ragged poor men whose angularities have been rubbed away? Or is he one of those whom Oxford immediately deprived of all kind of social exclusiveness? His Oxford reputation does not seem to bear out either account of him. To regard Lord Milner as a typical product of Oxford would surely be unfair. It would be to deprive the educational tradition of Germany of one of its most typical products. English aristocrats have their faults, but they are not at all like Lord Milner. What Mr. Asquith was meant to prove, whether he was a rich man who lost his exclusiveness or a poor man who lost his angles, I am utterly unable to conceive. There is, however, one mild but very evident truth that might perhaps be mentioned, and it is this, that none of those three excellent persons is, or ever has been, a poor man, in the sense that the word is understood by the overwhelming majority of the English nation. There are no poor men at Oxford, in the sense that the majority of men in the street are poor. The very fact that the writer in the outlook can talk about such people as poor shows that he does not understand what the modern problem is. His kind of poor man rather reminds me of the earl in the ballad by the great English satirist, Sir W. S. Gilbert, whose angles, very acute angles, had, I fear, never been rubbed down by an old English university. The reader will remember that when the periwinkle girl was adored by two dukes, the poet added, A third adorer had the girl, a man of lowly station, a miserable groveling earl, besought her approbation. Perhaps, indeed, some allusion to our university system, and to the universal clash in it, of all the clashes of the community, may be found in the verse a little further on, which says, He'd had, it happily befell, a decent education. His views would have befitted well a far superior station. Possibly there was as simple a chasm between Lord Curzon and Lord Milner, but I'm afraid that the chasm will become almost imperceptible, a microscopic crack, if we compare it with the chasm that separates either or both of them from the people of this country. Of course the truth is exactly as the Bishop of Birmingham put it. I am sure that he did not put it in any unkindly or contemptuous spirit toward those old English seats of learning, which, whether they are or not seats of learning, are at any rate old in English, and those are two very good things to be. The old English university is a playground for the governing class. That does not prove that it is a bad thing. It might prove that it was a very good thing. Certainly, if there is a governing class, let there be a playground for the governing class. I would much rather be ruled by men who know how to play than by men who do not know how to play. Granted that we are to be governed by a rich section of the community, it is certainly very important that the section should be kept tolerably genial and jolly. If the sensitive man on the outlook does not like the phrase playground of the rich, I can suggest a phrase that describes such a place as Oxford, perhaps with more precision. It is a place for humanizing those who might otherwise be tyrants, or even experts. To pretend that the aristocrat meets all classes at Oxford is too ludicrous to be worth discussion. But it may be true that he meets more different kinds of men than he would meet under a strictly aristocratic regime of private tutors and small schools. 
It all comes back to the fact that the English, if they were resolved to have an aristocracy, were at least resolved to have a good-natured aristocracy. And it is due to them to say that almost alone among the peoples of the world they have succeeded in getting one. One could almost tolerate the thing if it were not for the praise of it. One might endure Oxford, but not the outlook. When the poor man at Oxford loses his ankles, which means, I suppose, his independence, he may perhaps, even if his poverty is of that highly relative type possible at Oxford, gain a certain amount of worldly advantage from the surrender of those ankles. I must confess, however, that I can imagine nothing nastier than to lose one's ankles. It seems to me that a desire to retain some angles about one's person is a desire common to all those human beings who do not set their ultimate hopes upon looking like Humpty Dumpty. Our angles are simply our shapes. I cannot imagine any phrase more full of the subtle and exquisite vileness which is poisoning and weakening our country than such a phrase as this, about the desirability of rubbing down the angularities of poor men. Reduced to permanent and practical human speech, it means nothing whatever except the corrupting of that very first human sense of justice which is the critic of all human institutions. It is not in any such spirit of facile and reckless assurance that we should approach the really difficult problem of the delicate virtues and deep dangers of our two historic seats of learning. A good son does not easily admit that his sick mother is dying, but neither does a good son cheerily assert that she is all right. There are many good arguments for leaving the two historic universities exactly as they are. There are many good arguments for smashing them or altering them entirely. But in either case the plain truth told by the Bishop of Birmingham remains. If these universities were destroyed, they would not be destroyed as universities. If they are preserved, they will not be preserved as universities. They will be preserved strictly and literally as playgrounds, places valued for their hours of leisure more than for their hours of work. I do not say that this is unreasonable. As a matter of private temperament I find it attractive. It is not only possible to say a great deal in praise of play, it is really possible to say the highest things in praise of it. It might reasonably be maintained that the true object of all human life is play. Earth is a task garden. Heaven is a playground. To be at last in such secure innocence that one can juggle with the universe and the stars is to be so good that one can treat everything as a joke. That may be, perhaps, the real end and final holiday of human souls. When we are really holy, we may regard the universe as a lark. So perhaps it is not essentially wrong to regard the university as a lark. But the plain and present fact is that our upper classes do regard the university as a lark and do not regard it as a university. It also happens very often that through some oversight they neglect to provide themselves with that extreme degree of holiness which I have postulated as a necessary preliminary to such indulgence in the higher frivolity. Humanity, always dreaming of a happy race, free, fantastic, and at ease, has sometimes pictured them in some mystical island, sometimes in some celestial city, sometimes as fairies, gods, or citizens of Atlantis. 
but one method in which it has often indulged is to picture them as aristocrats as a special human class that could actually be seen hunting in the woods or driving about the streets and this never was as some silly germans say a worship of pride and scorn mankind never really admired pride mankind never had anything but scorn for scorn it was a worship of the spectacle of happiness especially of the spectacle of youth this is what the old universities in their noblest aspect really are and this is why there is always something to be said for keeping them as they are aristocracy is not a tyranny it is not even merely a spell it is a vision it is a deliberate indulgence in a certain picture of pleasure painted for the purpose every duchess is in an innocent sense painted like gainsborough's duchess of devonshire she is only beautiful because at the back of all the english people wanted her to be beautiful in the same way the lads at oxford and cambridge are only larking because england in the depths of its solemn soul really wishes them to lark all this is very human and pardonable and would even be harmless if there were no such things in the world as danger and honor and intellectual responsibility but a aristocracy is a vision it is perhaps the most unpractical of all visions it is not a working way of doing things to put all your happiest people on a lighted platform and stare only at them it is not a working way of managing education to be entirely content with the mere fact that you have to a degree unexampled in the world given the luckiest boys the jolliest time it would be easy enough like the writer in the outlook to enjoy the pleasures and deny the perils oh what a happy place england would be to live in if only one did not love it woman a correspondent has written me an able and interesting letter in the matter of some allusions of mine to the subject of communal kitchens he defends communal kitchens very lucidly from the standpoint of the calculating collectivist but like many of his school he cannot apparently grasp that there is another test of the whole matter with which such calculation has nothing at all to do he knows it would be cheaper if a number of us ate at the same time so as to use the same table it would it would also be cheaper if a number of us slept at different times so as to use the same pair of trousers but the question is not how cheap are we buying a thing but what are we buying it is cheap to own a slave and it is cheaper still to be a slave my correspondent also says that the habit of dining out in restaurants etc is growing so i believe is the habit of committing suicide i do not desire to connect the two facts together it seems fairly clear that a man could not dine at a restaurant because he had just committed suicide and it would be extreme perhaps to suggest that he commits suicide because he has just dined at a restaurant but the two cases when put side by side are enough to indicate the falsity and poltroonery of this eternal modern argument from what is in fashion the question for brave men is not whether a certain thing is increasing the question is whether we are increasing it i dine very often in restaurants 
because the nature of my trade makes it convenient. But if I thought that by dining in restaurants I was working for the creation of communal meals, I would never enter a restaurant again. I would carry bread and cheese in my pocket, or eat chocolate out of automatic machines, for the personal element in some things is sacred. I heard Mr. Will Crooks put it perfectly the other day. The most sacred thing is to be able to shut your own door. My correspondent says, Would not our women be spared the drudgery of cooking and all its attendant worries, leaving them free for higher culture? The first thing that occurs to me to say about this is very simple, and is, I imagine, a part of all our experience. If my correspondent can find any way of preventing women from worrying, he will indeed be a remarkable man. I think the matter is a much deeper one. First of all, my correspondent overlooks a distinction which is elementary in our human nature. Theoretically, I suppose, everyone would like to be freed from worries. But nobody in the world would always like to be freed from worrying occupations. I should very much like, as far as my feelings at the moment go, to be free from the consuming nuisance of writing this article. But it does not follow that I should like to be free from the consuming nuisance of being a journalist. Because we are worried about a thing, it does not follow that we are not interested in it. The truth is the other way around. The truth is the other way. If we are not interested, why on earth should we be worried? Women are worried about housekeeping, but those that are most interested are the most worried. Women are still more worried about their husbands and their children. And I suppose if we strangled the children and poleaxed the husbands, it would leave women free for higher culture. That is, it would leave them free to begin to worry about that. For women would worry about higher culture as much as they worry about everything else. I believe this way of talking about women and their higher culture is almost entirely a growth of the classes which, unlike the journalistic class to which I belong, have always a reasonable amount of money. One odd thing I especially notice, those who write like this seem entirely to forget the existence of the working and wage-earning classes. They say eternally, like my correspondent, that the ordinary woman is always a drudge. And what in the name of the nine gods is the ordinary man? These people seem to think that the ordinary man is a cabinet minister. They are always talking about a man going forth to wield power, to carve his own way, to stamp his individuality on the world, to command and to be obeyed. This may be true of a certain class. Dukes, perhaps, are not drudges, but then neither are duchesses. The ladies and gentlemen of the smart set are quite free for the higher culture which consists chiefly of motoring and bridge. But the ordinary man who typifies and constitutes the millions that make up our civilization is no more free for the higher culture than his wife is. Indeed, he is not so free. Of the two sexes, the woman is the more powerful position, for the average woman is at the head of something with which she can do as she likes. The average man has to obey orders and do nothing else. He has to put one dull brick on another dull brick and do nothing else. He has to add one dull figure to another dull figure and do nothing else. The woman's world is a small one, perhaps, but she can alter it. The woman can tell the tradesman with whom she deals some realistic things about himself. A clerk who does this to the manager generally gets the sack, 
or shall we say, to avoid the vulgarism, finds himself free for the higher culture. Above all, as I said in my previous article, the woman does work which is in some small degree creative and individual. She can put the flowers or the furniture in fancy arrangements of her own. I fear the bricklayer cannot put the bricks in fancy arrangements of his own without disaster to himself and others. If the woman is only putting a patch into a carpet, she can choose the thing with regard to color. I fear it would not do for the office boy dispatching a parcel to choose his stamps with a view to color, to prefer the tender mauve of the sixpenny to the crude scarlet of the penny stamp. A woman cooking may not always cook artistically. Still, she can cook artistically. She can introduce a personal and imperceptible alteration into the composition of a soup. The clerk is not encouraged to introduce a personal and imperceptible alteration into the figures in a ledger. The trouble is that the real question I raised is not discussed. It is argued as a problem in pennies, not as a problem in people. It is not the proposals of these reformers that I feel to be false so much as their temper and their arguments. I am not nearly so certain that communal kitchens are wrong as I am that the defenders of communal kitchens are wrong. Of course, for one thing, there is a vast difference between the communal kitchens of which I spoke and the communal meal, monstrous horrendum in form, which the darker and wilder mind of my correspondent diabolically calls up. But in both, the trouble is that their defenders will not defend them humanly as human institutions. They will not interest themselves in the staring psychological fact that there are some things that a man or a woman, as the case may be, wishes to do for himself or herself. He or she must do it inventively, creatively, artistically, individually, in a word, badly. Choosing your wife, say, is one of these things. Is choosing your husband's dinner one of these things? That's the whole question. It's never asked. And then the higher culture. I know that culture. I would not set any man free for it if I could help it. The effect of it on the rich men who are free for it is so horrible that it is worse than any of the other amusements of the millionaires. Worse than gambling. Worse even than philanthropy. It means thinking the smallest poet in Belgium greater than the greatest poet in England. It means losing every democratic sympathy. It means being unable to talk to a navvy about sport, or about beer, or about the Bible, or about the Derby, or about patriotism, or about anything whatever that he, the navvy, wants to talk about. It means taking literature seriously, a very amateurish thing to do. It means pardoning indecency only when it is gloomy indecency. Its disciples will call a spade a spade, but only when it is a gravedigger's spade. The higher culture is sad, cheap, impudent, unkind, without honesty, and without ease. In short, it is high, that abominable word also applied to game, admirably describes it. No, if you were setting women free for something else, I might be more melted if you can assure me privately and gravely that you are setting women free to dance on the mountains like menades, or to worship some monstrous goddess. I will make a note of your request, if you are quite sure that the ladies in Brixton, 
the moment they give up cooking, will bear great gongs and blow-horns and mumbo-jumbo, then I will agree that the occupation is at least human, and is more or less entertaining. Women have been set free to be Bacchanites, they have been set free to be virgin martyrs, they have been set free to be witches. Do not ask them now to sink so low as the higher culture. I have my own little notions of the possible emancipation of women, but I suppose I should not be taken very seriously if I propounded them. I should favor anything that would increase the present enormous authority of women and their creative action in their own homes. The average woman, as I have said, is a despot. The average man is a serf. I am for any scheme that one can suggest that will make the average woman more of a despot. So far from wishing her to get her cooked meals from outside, I should like her to cook more wildly and at her own will than she does. So far from getting always the same meals from the same place, let her invent if she likes a new dish every day of her life. Did woman be more of a maker, not less? We are right to talk about woman, only blackguards talk about women. Yet all men talk about men, and that is the whole difference. Men represent the deliberative and democratic element in life. Woman represents the despotic. End of section 4